nothing fit for a king. Kind of have this image in my head of coming to the Lord with a bag of trash. Because that's really the best that I have. And I stand before God and I, and I dump this trash out on the table and I say, God, how, how can you find anything in this garbage that would bring you glory? How can God be glorified in the mess of my life? Then the Lord reaches up and he just takes that stuff off the table and wipes it off and says, there it is. And I cry to my heart, hallelujah. That's all I have. That's all you have. When we stand before a holy God in the trash of our life, all that we have is a hallelujah because he's done it all for us, amen? What Jesus has done for you and me, I don't even think we have begun to fathom the life that God has given to us. And maybe we won't until we stand face to face with him someday and see him in all of his glory and his majesty because I am guaranteed that at that moment, I won't be thinking about the life I lived. I'll be thinking about falling at his feet and worshiping him with everything that I have in absolute gratitude. So if you're here this morning, joining us online, thank you for being here. I want to invite you to turn to Malachi, the very end of chapter two. I was hoping, as we, uh, Caleb told you last week in service, to post kind of a, uh, a sermon from my office from last week's message and Google doesn't like me, just like Siri doesn't like me and the way it translates me on my phone. Google doesn't like me apparently either because I've tried to upload that video five times and it keeps cutting off, but it's coming. I don't want us to miss that teaching. It's an important teaching. Uh, it would have started in verse number 10 last week. And basically the thrust of that passage talked about divorce. And so we were thinking about it in Ensenada. I'm going, all right, we're going to come back and we're going to report on what happened in Ensenada and then I'm going to preach on divorce. But hold on, let me, let, me, let me just couch it this way to you. The problem that was going on in that passage was that they were complaining that, God, you won't accept our offering. We're bringing stuff to you, and we're not experiencing what our forefathers experienced. And God said, well, you, you've got a problem. You're not being faithful to the covenant. In fact, Brother Fred shared with us from chapter 1 that the leadership in Israel was, was bringing blind goats and sheep to sacrifice, right? Bringing, bring, not even bringing the best. So they weren't upholding what God had written in his word about being particular in the covenant. But then there was another problem. The very problem that got them sent into to exile to start with is they were intermarrying with pagan women. And he calls them out for it. He said, you've come back to this land, you have been in exile, and you've been brought back here by my hand, and the very thing you start doing is marrying pagan women who are bringing paganism right back into the covenant community, and therefore breaking my covenant. And so God was charging them, you're not being faithful to my covenant because you're not being faithful in your marriage. Number one, by making bad choices. So application from that would have been last week, folks, if you're about to get married, you better make a good choice. No, I'm serious. I'm, I'm being a coach right now, not a pastor. You need to make a good think long and hard about it because divorce is not an option in God's eyes. He did not command it. He permitted it. And I know in this room, some of you have suffered the hardships of that. And it breaks my heart 
But God doesn't like divorce, as the passage says, because it is an evidence of the covenant we keep with him. And if I can't keep my covenant with my wife, how can I keep my covenant with a holy God? Well, you know what? You can't. That's why he had to bring a new covenant where everything rested on Christ and not on me. But you know what else they were doing? They were mistreating their wives. But in fact, it's, it's even worse than you think about it because I, I want to read this verse to you. If you look at verse number, excuse me, <clears throat> verse number 15, excuse me, 14. He begins to talk about, he's, he's used the word treacherous five times in here, treating somebody unfaithfully. But he goes down here in verse 16 to say, for I hate divorce, says the Lord. And him who covers his garment with wrong. Now, some of you have violence in that translation. Let me give you another word that may actually kind of uh, shock you when I say this word, because it's a word you're familiar with right now. It's the Hebrew word for violence. It's the word Hamas. They were treating their spouses the same way that Hamas is treating people in the Middle East. And God won't stand for it. They were bringing the same kind of violence that we're seeing represented today. So when you study Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, you're to love your wife the way that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That means you don't desert her, you don't abuse her, you don't cheat on her. And wives, yeah, you are commanded to submit, but you're commanded to submit to someone who is loving you like Christ loved the church. So there you go, that would have been your message last week. You could have gone and ate some chips at Los Amigos and been all happy. But you know, the point of it was this. We need to be faithful to God because God has always been faithful to us. And he's extended to us in the new covenant, a covenant that costs us nothing that his son paid for. And he is absolutely faithful in that. And now he's inviting you and me to be faithful to him. And so if you, were, if you had gotten into trouble with your parents... What's one of the first things you, you would normally do? God just told you that you had been faithless. You're mistreating your spouses. What would you do? What do you do when you get in trouble? Mom walks in the kitchen, there's flour all over the room. You and your brother standing there having a party and y'all stop and stand real still. And you go, he made me do it. Well, the Israelites were no different. It reminds me of when I was in third grade. In fact, I'm Facebook friends with my third grade teacher. And we got in trouble. The entire class got in trouble. We were having a pushing match. I don't know who started it. And when we got back, she lined every one of us up and paddled us. I believe there was probably one idiot in that line who said, I didn't start it. And that's exactly what Israel is doing here. So I want you to stand with me as we begin with verse number 17. Again, I want you to pay attention to this statement and how Israel is replying to this accusation about God and then how God responds. But it's the same kind of thing. They just got called out and now they're going to say this. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Not tired him. God can't grow tired. In that you say, quote, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? In other words, they just deflected like the best of them. They got called out and they immediately say, you know what, God, this is on you. Because you're letting the evil people prosper. 
You're not bringing justice. You're not doing anything. You won't show up in fire when we make offerings. Your presence isn't dwelling over our new holy of holies. Where are you, God? This is your fault. Shaking my fist at heaven. Then he goes on to say, well, all right. Well, let me set you straight. He said, behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Because this isn't an angel. This isn't a prophet coming. This is the Lord himself. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and, pure, and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Why? Why do they need to be purified? So that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. To correct this whole thing of coming to the altar with your tears, we're going to do it right. Then he says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. In other words, he will come. And I will be a swift witnesses against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the wage earners in his wages, the widow, the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So you think you've got it all together. You think you're without sin. Well, I'm about to, I'm about to break your mold here. Then he says this, and this is the key verse, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you are not consumed. Father, as we spend the next few minutes minutes in this passage, first of all, Lord, I pray you give me the strength to speak. I pray, Father, that they would hear your words and not mine, and that you would do a work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. It is very intriguing to me that in the pride of our flesh, when we do something wrong, the first thing we do is we begin to blame other people or point out the bad stuff in their life. We are so quick to call foul when someone has done us wrong to seek justice, to seek vindication. And when I'm the guilty party, and sometimes I don't realize it, but when I'm the guilty party to seek to deny it, to deflect it, and put it on somebody else. We want restitution rather than sacrifice. We want to blame and excuse rather than dealing with our own mess. We want vindication. We want to be made to look good or like King Saul. Don't embarrass me in front of the elders of Israel. Kind of reminds me of little Nancy. Little Nancy was in the garden filling in a hole when her neighbor peered over the fence. Interested in what the little girl was up to, he politely asked, hey, what's, what are you up to there, Nancy? My goldfish died, replied Nancy tearfully without looking up, and I just buried him. Neighbor was concerned. That's an awful big hole for a goldfish, isn't it? Nancy patted down the last heap of dirt and replied, well, that's because he's inside your stupid cat. <laughs> and, and that's the way we are, guys. We, 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 when we get wrong, when somebody calls us out, our flesh kicks in and we're going to say, by golly, you're not going to make me be, to be made look, to look bad. So they stand back. Here's God calling them out, and all they can do is do this right here. Well, God, where's your justice? Why haven't you shown up? Why haven't you dealt with them? Why don't you rain down fire from heaven like you did in the Old Testament and wipe out the evil people? Because the evil person was the one shaking their fist to heaven. 
The guilty party was the one crying for justice in this passage. Listen to the verse again. For you, what happened to them, what they don't have, looking back at the past, wishing for things to be like it used to be, but not taking responsibility. Folks, in our life, one of the biggest problems with sin in our life is we ignore it, we explain it, we excuse it, but we don't take ownership of it. When you accept Jesus Christ, it's absolutely important that you know the depth of your sin. Because how can you, how can you accept the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for your sin if you're without sin? Don't let that sit for a minute. Why is it that, that we'll say, I asked Jesus into my heart, but no life change? Sometimes it's because you have not acknowledged the absolute desperate need you have as a sinner. Because like I said earlier, you come to the table and you bring your best and it's in a garbage bag and you dump it out and it's filth because you bring nothing to the table. But when you start going, well, God, look how good I am. I'm not as bad as that person next to me. I'm not as bad as I used to be. I'm doing a little bit better. That's not Christianity, folks. That's just making yourself look better. What Jesus has invited us to do is to live a life under the cross. As Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but it's Christ who lives through me. And the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God, not myself, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's, that's a whole redirection of life. So when we look at this, and if you want to follow along in that study guide, Here's the assertion. The people complained that God was acting unjustly. The king of the universe, the sovereign God, who is righteous and holy other than us, and they're accusing him of being unjust. So the question that they asked was, well, how have we wearied him? Because you won't stop talking, that's why. You keep bringing these complaints, but not in a sense of solution. You keep telling God, God, this is your fault. This is your fault. You've brought this on me. Rather than coming to him with a humble heart, a heart that's open and willing to say, you know what, Lord, I don't understand why this is happening in my life, but I want to empty myself and submit myself open to you to teach me and show me. So his response was exactly what they asked for, judgment was coming. Judgment was coming. And for him to be weary, it's not like us to be weary. In fact, Isaiah 40 verse number 28 says that God does not become weary or tired. He does not become weary or tired like a human being would, but he's, his, his, his patience in the sense of the complaints that they continue to weigh against him is growing tired of them. Yahweh was tired of the Israelites saying that he, God, delighted in them all the while saying that everyone who did evil was acceptable to him. He said, they were basically saying, God, you're approving of their sin. Well, why does that matter? Because if they can stand on that charge, it negates the things he just charged them with. If they can prove God to be unjust, then the value of their sacrifices that they were bringing what they were doing in their community by bringing paganism back into Israel through their marriages would be negated. 
Because if God is smiling down on sin, then just go for it. Oh, keep on at it. But do you think that's what God is saying to us? Do you think God wants you? Look at me. You think God wants you to stay in your sin? If you've accepted Jesus Christ, he's invited you to turn away from sin. Sin no longer holds value in you because now the spirit of God lives in you. And if you're a Christian living in sin, you're the most miserable person on the face of this planet because those two things can't go together. The spirit of God pulling you one way, your flesh pulling you another, that would be miserable. Misery. That's not what God wants for your life. And so in this passage, he's gonna give us four predictions. Some of those predictions have come about. Some of those have yet to come. But at the end of this message, you know what I want you to walk out of this room with? I know this is a heavy message about sin, but I want you to walk out of this room with hope that the God of the universe is going to bring justice. And the God of the universe is soon coming. So go ahead and fill in the first blank. The first prom, the first, uh, the first thing that's going to happen, the first prediction is that there's a messenger that's coming. He said in the text, behold, I'm going to send my messenger, not your messenger, not someone else's messenger. He said, my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. When we studied Hebrews chapter two, verse number two, we learned that we need to listen to the voice of the Messiah whose words was greater than the messengers, the angels, because that's what this word is. But we know from New Testament, as the New Testament plays out, who this messenger was. We know that there was a messenger coming, that he would come before the Lord. And Mark chapter one, verse two reveals immediately, quoting this verse, that it's John the Baptist. Has John the Baptist come? Yes, he came. In fact, his father Zacharias, after after Zacharias had lost his voice for his lack of faith, on the day that John was born, they're asking him, what's his name to be? And he said, John, they're like, dude, that's not your family name. And at that moment, he receives the ability to speak again. And in that, he prophesies about John saying, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his way. When dignitaries fly into Atlanta, they prepare the way, right? They block off city streets. They, they provide a caravan for that person, whoever it is, senator, president. Well, how did John prepare the way for the Lord? Because he wasn't born in, a, he wasn't born in, in, in the castle. He wasn't born in, in, in any kind of, 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 of status. How did John the Baptist prepare the way for the Lord? He separated himself and he preached a certain message. Y'all remember what that message was? Y'all remember the message that, that John the Baptist preached if you've, if you've read the New Testament? You know what it was that John the Baptist was calling them to do and why he was standing in the Jordan River asking them to come and be baptized? Does anybody know it? Call it out if you know it. What, what did John the Baptist, one word, what did John the Baptist preach? He asked them to repent. In fact, he said to the Pharisees that were standing there, that were trying to rebuke him, he said, you need to bear fruit in line with repentance. So while I was in Mexico, I did a little word study. I just kind of analyzed through the Bible where there were invitations given to people to accept Jesus. And there were two things I saw in common. Number one was the invite to repent. 
Does repentance save you? Yes or no? No. What saves you? Jesus Christ saves you. He paid the price to take your sin away. But there was an invite to repent. John the Baptist preached it. Later on in Mark 1, Jesus would begin to preach what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, and they say, what must we do, brothers? Peter said, repent. Folks, I think we've lost the art of repentance. You don't repent just one time. When Jesus has invited you into a relationship with him, it is necessary that we stay in alignment with him. Things are going to pull you away. Things are going to to step in your way. Things are going to happen to you. But when I align my heart with the Lord and I continually live in repentance, my life will bear the fruit of repentance. And that's what John the Baptist was preaching. He was preparing the way. And just like those Jews that Malachi was speaking to, look, my messenger's coming, get ready. My messenger would come because when that messenger comes, then you know what's right behind him. Me. Jesus, in fact, would would speak about John the Baptist. He would quote that same kind of phrasing, saying, there's someone coming before me. And he tells them it was John the Baptist. And he's speaking to the Jews. And if they had known the book of Malachi, they would have went, oh, 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 you're the one. You're the Lord. You're the Lord. You're God. It should have been common sense, but it wasn't. The sign of that messenger came and the promise was made. And here's the thing, because when he came, the second point here is that his coming would be sudden. You look back at verse one in Malachi three, he says, and the Lord whom you seek. Were they seeking him? They weren't really seeking him, they were blaming him. But just like Job, they wanted to have an audience with him. They wanted to plead their case. And he said, well, I'm coming, but I'm going to come suddenly to the temple. Whose temple is it? Is it the people's temple? Was it the people's altar? Was it their stuff? Whose was it? When we dedicate things to the Lord, to whom does it belong? When I dedicate my voice to the Lord, to whom does it belong? When I dedicate my heart to the Lord, to whom does it belong? When I give my gift to the Lord, to whom does it belong? It's his. It's not mine. And hypocritically, these people were going, well, you know what? That's my money. I should be able to dictate that. That's my offering. I should be able to dictate that. I'm right. You're wrong. That was their attitude. And he said, well, when I come, it's going to be sudden. He speaks these words, and there's 400 years prophetic silence until Jesus comes. And on that Christmas night, Mary and Joseph show up to Bethlehem. Town is unaware of who just arrived. Had no idea who was in the womb. That the king of the universe was about to come into this world. Put him in a stable where the, where the animals, the nasty animals were. And he comes into this world. And it was shepherds who get the message. Say, come and see the one that was promised. They were sleeping when our Savior came. Suddenly. 
And just like his first coming, his second coming is going to be sudden. And when he comes this next time, ladies and gentlemen, he's not going to be born in a hospital. He's not going to be born in a stable. When he comes this next time, you're going to know it and I'm going to know it. When that sky splits open, and I don't know where we are. I mean, we talk about looking toward the east. Uh, that's the east in Jerusalem. I don't know where it's going to be when we're standing here. You got to think geographically for a moment. But I can tell you what, it will be on every TV screen. And you will hear about it. And I can tell you what, if we're here to see that, which I, based on what I believe, will not be here when we see that. But we won't be here to see that. Jesus is going to show up on a horse according to the book of Revelation, and on his thigh will be written King of kings and Lord of lords, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. They won't be standing there shaking their fist and pointing their fingers at God and saying, this is your fault. They're going to drop to their knees. You know how beautiful that's going to be? All the creation standing before the king of the universe drops to their knees in absolute submission and humility. Soldiers on the field fighting will lay down their guns and they'll bend that knee. Folks, I'm telling you, the Israelites were hearing this message and we hear it again today. The messenger has come and Jesus is coming back. And my question to you and me is, are we ready? Are you ready? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And if you do, how do you know that? Are you bearing fruits in line with repentance? Have you received his word? Are you growing in the spirit? When you stand before the Lord telling Jesus, you ask Jesus into your heart, it's not going to be enough. Your life should evidence the path of salvation. And if that's true, then this third point is just as important because he's going to come. We don't know when he's going to come, but he's coming to purify us. He's coming to purify us. You know, when I, when I lived in Cleveland and I would drive to Helen, some of you have driven this road a lot on 75, and there's a sign that says, Discovery of Gold, right on the side of the highway. It's a, it's a, it's a historical marker. As you look out in the plains, just before you get to, that, uh, to the Chattahoochee River where the Indian Mound is, there's another kind of open plain. If you look out through there, you'll see something really weird. There's these huge holes in the ground. Maybe you haven't noticed, the next time you drive to, to Helen to go spend a day, if you're coming up on 75 from Duncan Bridge, you'll see there's these holes in the ground where they were digging for gold. And they just left these holes there. Well, you know, when gold comes out of the ground, it doesn't look like what you're wearing. In fact, what you're wearing isn't even pure gold. When they mine some kind of an ore, they have to purify it. They have to get all the, the junk out of it. And the most pure gold that, that we usually would have would be 24 karat gold. But even that is only 70% gold. Why? Because gold is malleable. That's why when they would find a, a nugget, they would bite into it to make sure it wasn't fool's gold. Because either the, the gold would sink in or you like to break their tooth. You know? Pure gold. And that's what God wants for my life and your life is to be malleable. He wants to send us through the fire to refine us. We don't, we don't talk about the refining fire very much. You know why? Because I believe, I believe we, we believe something wrong about the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Holy Spirit is some kind of, of sensitivity, like some kind of barometer, some kind of sixth sense that you and I kind of walk around, uh, around with. No, the Holy Spirit is the mark 
of the new covenant is God himself living inside of you and me. And when the Holy Spirit came on those believers that day on Pentecost, he appeared on them as tongues of fire. John the Baptist, when he was preaching at the river, says, you know what? I baptize you with water to repentance. Called repentance, right? Then he said, but there's someone coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to lace. purify you. He needs to cleanse you. He needs to cleanse me. Why? So that I can present my heart to him pure. The problem with the worship that God was rejecting is that it was selfish worship. The same as Cain's. Cain brought selfish worship and he rejected it. And Cain, in the evilness of his heart, killed his brother over worship. How many of us are still killing our brothers and sisters over worship today? Because we're bringing selfishness into the offering that I'm bringing before the Lord. Something to think about, isn't it? He came to refine us with that fire, to purify us. And that is the work of the Spirit in our life, getting the world out of us. That's the repentance aspect. I repent, I turn my life to the Lord. He begins to purify me. And this other arm over here is I'm growing in his word. I want to know what he says. I want to know what he thinks. And I want that to change me, to make me and to mold me so that God can use me. You see, if you look back in the text, He says, then the offering, this is verse four, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. That goes back to the, to the comments that they had made earlier about God not accepting their offering. He's saying, I can't accept your offering because it's being offered wrongly. We need the purifying mark of the Lord. Number four, messenger's coming. Messenger's coming. Lord comes suddenly. He's coming to purify, but he's also coming to serve justice. Justice will be served. Listen to what he says in verse five again. Then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be swift, a swift witness against the sorcerers, adulterers, those swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me. As one commentator said, quote, where is the God of justice? The people are reminded that the justice that they sought is the very thing that the Lord was going to bring. What they asked for, they're about to get, but they're going to get it because they stand guilty. He says, the Lord's justice ended and it is impossible for hypocrites to control. What does that mean? That means the one standing there who's guilty of the sin, pointing out the guilt of the other sinner, but thinking that they're not going to receive the justice too. Folks, I want the just judgment of God. I want the purifying power of God in my life. Why? Because on any given day, I am ignorant to a thousand sins that I commit. Maybe I challenge you to this. When you pray, do you daily say, Lord, show me where I have failed today. Show me where I have sinned and cleanse me of that sin. Do you pray that? Based on 1 John 1, 9, do you pray that? Why is it important to pray that? Aren't I a Christian? Don't I have a relationship with the Lord? Yes, but you need the continually clean, continual cleansing of the Lord in your life, in my life. Listen to what that uh, commentator went on to say. 
to them. It said it would bring condemnation and punishment against the sins of the very people who were calling for it. So let, let me take a tangent for a moment. Take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 2, just for a second. Romans chapter 2, because I, I want you to hear this, because Paul is calling this out to the Roman church even before he shows up there. Starting in verse number 1, he says this, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. In other words, if they're guilty, you're guilty. And then he goes on to say, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. In other words, it's going to happen. Judgment is coming. But the only way that you and I will get through judgment is if we have trusted Jesus Christ, who paid the price so that we would not experience the judgment that we deserve. Then he says in verse 3, But do you suppose, O man, that when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same thing yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? By no means. Now listen to this carefully. Or do you, not, do you think so lightly of the riches of his kindness, and tolerance, and patience, not knowing that it was the kindness of God that led you to repentance? Did you catch that? The kindness of the Lord that led you to repentance. Why? God's just beating me up. I'm no good. God isn't thinking anything of me. No, 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 no. God thinks so highly that he sent his son to die for you. That means you're valuable. But you need your sin dealt with. He's coming to judge. Right now, the Lord is holding back his wrath on creation. We have things like Hamas doing terrible things. But wait a minute, we look at that and call foul, but do we ever point the finger inside and say, but the words that I said about that person behind their back was damaging too. That the thoughts that I had were damaging too. We're so busy judging others that we forget that I sit under judgment too. But for the Christian, we want it. We want to be refined. We want to grow. We want to be beyond that. He says, you know, think about this. In Romans 12, he says, Never take your own, for your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. I think it's a sad state when we wish bad things to happen to other people. What I think God wants our heart to become is that when we see the bad people doing the bad things, that our heart is turned to go, you know what? God, have mercy on them. Have patience on them. Let them hear the gospel and be saved. That takes a lot of maturity and it takes a lot of dying to myself. But you know what's cool about this? That last verse and point number five. And I want you to go back and read Second Peter at your convenience because he is bringing judgment. It's coming. We don't know when it's coming, but he's coming and we need to be ready. But all this is important. Why? Because God does not change. The reason he said you will not be consumed is because I, Yahweh, do not change. I don't go back on my word. I do not break my promises. One author translated that verse to say this, I, Yahweh, have not changed. You, the sons of Jacob, have not perished. That's why they were in the land. This goes back all the way to the beginning of chapter one. The reason I brought you back is because of my promise. My promise. My promise. Not my good intentions, but his promise. 
The point is that if Yahweh were the kind of unfair and unfaithful God that they had charged him with, who acted capriciously on the basis of momentary convenience, he would put an end to them a long time ago. God is not a man that he would lie, nor a son of man that he should repent according to Numbers 23. Has he said it and will he not do it? Or has he not make it good? Jesus is the same. Y'all know this verse. Yesterday, today, and forever. Do you find hope knowing God does not change? God does not go back on his word. God is not going to break his promise. And he's extended that to you and to me. And for me to scoff, to fold my arms, to clench my fist, to point my finger at heaven and say, God, all of this is your fault. I've missed the kindness that God is extending to me. The patience and the tolerance that he would put up with somebody like me. Just like I said at the beginning, with this bag full of trash, the best that I could bring, and dump it on a table. And in his mercy, he just takes his arm and rakes it right off. You know, I, I kind of think of it like this. This is, this is a ladder, right? We all agree on that? Now, I want you to imagine this ladder being a whole lot taller than it is. But that this is my connection to the Lord. And here I am in my life, and I'm thinking God's unjust, and He's done me wrong, and He's, he's done this and that, and He's taken care of the sinners better than me. And I'm standing there with my feet, my fists clenched. I could come over here and try to climb this ladder. I could show you all my skill. Because I can climb this ladder without my arms. How foolish would that be? How would y'all like to have to call 911 because this ladder tipped over because I was being an idiot? Nobody wants to see that. But I'm telling you, it's hard to climb a ladder with your hands clenched, closed. Coming to God in my arrogance, in my pride. What I need to do is have that heart that Peter talked about. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you at the proper time. The only thing that I ought to clinch is this. What I need to clinch with my fist is a mirror and look at myself. Take my eyes off of all of those that are around me that I'm pointing my finger at and calling God, calling foul on God and saying, God, you're not any good because you're letting them get better than me. What I need to do is stand there and look at myself and say like the psalmist said, God, would you look me over? Would you explore the depths of my soul? Would you show me if there be any wicked way in me and wash me clean? I need to find hope in his justice. So this morning, I'm going to ask you just a minute to stand with me. And I think simply put today, my challenge to you is this. Some of you have been a Christian for a long time, but you truly have never repented of your sin. Or you've claimed to be a Christian for a long time, but you've never repented of your sin. Just like the Israelites standing there that day accusing God, you're making excuses, you're holding on to it too long, you're saying, you know what, I can't do any better, God's not helping me, i got a family member that's a drug addict, and every time I talk to him, he says, well, if God loved me, he'd take this away. Like, no, God will make a way to deliver you out of temptation. But the longer that you love the sin more than you love God, 
you're trapped. My challenge to you today is repent. And discover the joy that you can have in following the Lord. Does that mean you're not going to slip up? Does that mean you're not going to mess up? No, but we have an advocate with the Father who is praying for you and for me. Are you ready? If Jesus came back right now, are you ready? Would you be ashamed if God come back right now and, and you've been so busy with all these different things in your life that you haven't had a chance to live for the Lord? I know that sounds very shaming. I don't mean it to be. I want you to find and tap into the life that God created you to be. And to live in the power of the Spirit to make a difference in this world. We don't have to go 2,000 miles to Ensenada to make a difference. We're making a difference right here in our backyard. And I do that when I live my life daily for the Lord. So would you stand with me, Father, as we, we come to this time of worship. God, you're so good. God, you're good. You're so awesome. And we praise you today. God, I hope that they hear today this invite to just, to just turn to wherever they are in their life right now. To just stop and say, you know what, Lord, I don't want this in my life anymore. I need help. I'm going to let it go to you. I'm going to stop making excuses. I'm going to stop running. I'm going to stop blaming other people. And I'm going to let you take it because, God, you don't change. And we can have hope today because of the justice you bring in our life, the judgment you bring in our life to purify us, to make us vessels that you can use. But God, also to know that someday you will come back and you will judge the devil. You will judge evil. And God, you will eradicate it. And so God, we hold to that promise and that truth as we sing today, Lord. Be magnified in our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.